Welcome to A Well-Cared-For Human, the podcast that tries to convince you that you are 100% normal and an even better than okay example of the human species, despite the fact that sometimes we feel like the craziest, most incapable, or worthless creatures on the face of this planet. I'm Corey, an author, a creative, and the host of the show. Whatever you're bringing to the table today, I hope this episode proves to be a dose of inspiration for you on your quest to become a well-cared-for human. You can find the episode show notes, your free wellness blueprint, and more at awellcaredforhuman.com. And as always, thank you for listening. Hello humans, it's your host Corey, and today we're going to talk about shame. Before you turn off the episode and run screaming in the other direction, (laughs) stick with me on this one. I know the very idea of shame is a trigger word for a lot of people, but I'd love to use this opportunity to explain how it may be a driving force for a lot of the misery you're feeling, and what you can do to alleviate that misery. Also, a lot of the ideas I'll be talking about today directly reference Brene Brown's TED Talk, Listening to Shame which I highly encourage you to go listen to if you haven't already. Or even if you have, listen to it again because her words bear repeating. And if you don't know who Brene Brown is, she's a researcher, an author, and a very hilarious Texan. Not to mention that she has her own podcast called Unlocking Us, if you want to give it a listen. But I have personally loved her TED Talks and her book called Daring Greatly. So check her out if any of that sounds interesting to you. And that takes us to the question of what is shame? Brown does a good job of explaining how shame is not guilt. Guilt is, I did something bad. It's a focus on your behavior rather than any sort of qualities that you have. And shame, on the other hand, is far more internalized than that. Shame is, I am bad. I am a mistake. There's a lot of focus on the self. It's that little voice that says, you're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. And hopefully you can hear the difference between guilt, which is something bad happened, and shame, which is I am the something bad. (laughs) I am what's wrong. That's the difference. Because while it's normal to have guilt over something that you did, maybe a bad behavior or a general view of something that happened to you in the past, maybe you wish things had gone a different way, it doesn't have that internalized nature to it that shame has. And speaking of the way shame can be internalized. It reminds me of what Pima Children said in her book, Getting Unstuck, which I've mentioned before. And in that book, she talks about the Buddhist concept of shinpa, which is our negative emotions, and how we turn them against ourselves as proof that we are worthless, we're bad, we're terrible. All of that sounds very similar to this concept of shame to me. So again, you could go listen to Pima Children's work on Getting Unstuck as well. But the problem with shame is that The more shame we carry, the harder it is to love ourselves. It's really hard to love yourself if you're convinced, I am bad. And in my own life, at least, when my shame was at its peak, when it was its most intense, I certainly did not love myself. And the idea that I could ever feel differently, that the possibility of me loving myself was even on the table, seemed absolutely impossible. Because over the course of my life, I acquired a lot of shame. I had a lot of shame build up due to the experiences that I had. And I absolutely came to believe that I am bad. I am a mistake. I'm worthless. There's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough. And there were multiple experiences that compounded these feelings of shame for me. One of the more 
benign, I guess we could say, is when I was outed as gay in a small conservative town, (laughs) which essentially a bit of context for that is I was 14 and the county fair had come to town and I had gone to the fair with my friends. But when I was there, I met this girl and I thought she was really cute. And so we started riding some rides together. And then she left the fair with me and neither of us went to school the next day. We skipped school. But then when I went to the school the day after, suddenly everything had changed. Mostly I had just been sort of floating in the background of my middle school at the time. So my middle school had 7th, 8th, and ninth grade in it. So I was in the ninth grade in the middle school and no one really knew who I was or paid attention to me. And then for some reason, I came back from taking a day off from playing hooky one day and everyone knew me and not in a great way. <laughs> People were shoving books out of my hands. They were knocking me up against the lockers. They were shouting things at me that I didn't really understand. And I just had no idea what had happened. And so I went up to my best friend at the time and I tried to ask her what was going on. Why was everyone picking on me? And she wouldn't talk to me. She slammed her locker closed, which was next to mine, and stormed away without speaking to me. And I was really shocked by that. And it took me a long time to realize that because the person that I had been hanging out with, this girl that I had found at the fair, she was the town pariah, which obviously I did not know because we went to different schools, but someone must have known. Someone who knew both both stories uh, must have told someone in my school and it spread like wildfire over the course of a day. This is what it's like living in small towns where no one else has anything better to do. And this was long before gay marriage was legal and all of that. So it was still very much a problem in the early 90s, especially in these small towns, these small conservative towns. And so it took me a while to figure out what had happened, that I had been guilty by association. And those experiences left me with this feeling that there was something wrong with me, that I am bad, it's not okay. And it was really compounded by the fact that this was probably one of the last safe spaces that I had in my life in the sense that school was so much more predictable than my home life had ever been. At home, you know, anyone's behavior could have changed on a dime. Someone could end up in jail on the same day that that morning we had pancakes. You know, know, like there was just no rhyme or reason to my life outside of school. But school felt safe because it was very predictable. You know, you had all of your classes at the same time. You ate lunch at the same time. You were always fed. It was very consistent, which is something that I craved when I was that age. And then now suddenly my school life had become like my home life, which is I didn't know how the day would go. I didn't know if people would leave me alone or if someone would decide to target me. And for that reason, it really started to affect me mentally and emotionally. And this was on top of the psychological and emotional abuse that I was getting from my father when he would say things like, you know, you're just like your mother. You're just as crazy as she is. You can't be trusted. I don't think anything that you'll ever do will amount to anything. You're never going to be better than she is. It doesn't matter how hard you work. And those are all very much shame narratives. And I feel that I know why he did that, which we're going to get to when I start talking about his shame. But at the time, it didn't register to me that possibly he was just projecting and that it had nothing to do with me. You know, I was a little kid and this was my dad, so I was definitely internalizing everything that he was saying. And even if you didn't have a rough background like me, there's plenty of ways to pick up shame narratives. There's shame narratives in our media, in our 
messaging around poverty or working hard, things about the body, physical imperfections, or if you're a member of a minority group of any kind, race is a big one. There are all these narratives that you're not okay just because of who you are. So you are what's wrong. Because essentially, anytime when we are ourselves, when we're vulnerable or we're just existing, (laughs) frankly, and someone or something comes in and tells us that we're bad or they do something or say something that makes us feel like we're bad, that we do not inherently have worth, then shame enters the picture. It starts to compound the problem. It starts to degrade our self-esteem, our self-worth, our self-love. And in my case, it was all of those experiences that I had put together, compounded over time, that led me to being 24, suicidal, depressed, and bulimic, which all very much aligns with Brene Brown's research about shame. In her talk, she outlines how there's a high correlation between addiction, depression, aggression, violence, eating disorders, bullying, suicide. All of those are manifestations of the presence of shame. So I was a pretty textbook example of what happens when you acquire a lot of shame over the course of a traumatic childhood and it compounds until you're just really unwell. But here we are, 15 years later, I'm no longer 24, I'm no longer dealing with suicidal thoughts, depression, bulimia, any of the things that were manifesting from the root cause of my shame. But can I say that I am shame-free today? No one is slapping me across the face and calling me queer or any of the other derogatory terms. I certainly don't talk to my father anymore who, you know, would say these things that would trigger it. I have loving connections, but has the shame gone away? Done all this work? Did I get rid of the shame? And honestly, the answer is no, not entirely. It has diminished greatly. I'm no longer struggling with it the way I was in the past. It no longer has the chokehold on me that it did 15 years ago. I'm no longer in danger of dying from my shame. But its effects do still linger, particularly in the area of achievement. Because Brown explains that for women, shame is often expressed as do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. Those are her words. And let me tell you, oh boy, when I heard her say that... I was like, well, I don't think I've ever heard a clear definition of my personality in my life. (laughs) Because I definitely am someone who feels like I have to do it all, I have to do it perfectly, and I can never let them see me sweat. But fortunately, today, I have a, a lot more clarity around my habits, around why I do what I do. I'm able to bring a bit of wisdom to the situation. So I understand that children develop by mirroring their parents. And this was just dangerous in my case because my parents had personality disorders and mood disorders. (laughs) But as with the situation with my father's narcissistic personality disorder, he was obsessed with this idea of do not be perceived as weak, which is a common way that shame is expressed in men. And I suspect that my father's level of shame is tremendous. And he did project a lot of that onto me. And I did internalize a lot of his fears by mirroring him, by listening to the words that he said, I internalized a lot of that and absorbed it into my own emotional and mental space. And this isn't the first time I had heard it. The idea that narcissistic personality disorder tends to correlate with high levels of shame. In fact, the emotional detachment, the shutting down that my father had described to me before, the way I've listened to other narcissists describe, it's a coping mechanism meant to mitigate the pain of shame. And I'm sure this narrative that he carries of do not be perceived as weak, which is something that he said to me 
at least a hundred times throughout the course of my childhood that his view and loyalty to that statement was probably compounded by some of the environments he was in, his very abusive childhood, his time in the military, his time in prison. Any of those situations does not allow for vulnerability. And not only does it not allow for vulnerability, but it's probably quite dangerous to express vulnerability in any way in those situations. So by the time he was out of prison and he was back to being my parent, his projections of do not be perceived as weak were pretty intense. They were significant. It was a significant narrative that he was instilling in me. So these notions of I can't be perceived as weak, I have to do it all, I have to do it perfectly, no one can see me sweat, I definitely still exhibit shame in those ways. I have not completely eliminated those narratives just because it was such a big part of my childhood, the messaging that I absorbed in my childhood. And even though my father's no longer in my life, even though he can no longer actively hurt me in any way like he did in the past, these feelings of shame persist because I'm still me. (laughs) I'm still here. (laughs) Because we are often the ones who continue to be really hard on ourselves, to hurt ourselves. Even after we cut our abusers out of our lives, we can still be the one who's cracking the whip, so to speak. So it's true that my present reality, my current environment is so much more gentle than it was in the past. I just don't have those kinds of destructive conversations. I don't have those dangerous situations. None of the things that I was dealing with in the past are in my present, but there's still me, my mind, my self-limiting beliefs, my old thought patterns. And those, to whatever extent, are continuing to sustain old feelings of shame. So what am I doing about it? And what can you do about it if you're struggling with feelings of shame? First of all, we can avoid the things that make shame more powerful, the food of shame, and we can do more things that diminish the power of shame over us. What makes shame more powerful? Brown says the food of shame is secrecy, hiding yourself away, being silent about what's happened to you or about the way people might have hurt you, judging yourself too harshly, being hard on yourself. All of that breeds shame, fuels it, keeps it alive. But on the other hand, shame is diminished in the presence of empathy. Our ability to understand and share the feelings of others, to practice self-compassion for yourself, to know that you're not the only one in the world who feels shame. Not even close. Everyone is really good at hiding it, which is part of the problem, but you are definitely not the only one in the world carrying this feeling of, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, I'm never going to be enough. Almost everyone has that feeling inside of them. And at the end of her talk, Brown says that the most powerful thing we can do when we see someone struggling with shame is to reach out and say, me too. Me too. I feel that way too. I'm going through that too. And I guess that's what this whole episode is about today, which is I don't have all the answers for how to deal with shame, but I want to acknowledge that it might be something you're struggling with, like me. It might be something that's holding you back, like me. And all I can do is tell you that if you keep working on loving yourself, if you keep on working befriending your mind, your body, on nurturing your spirit and building healthy relationships with others, it will naturally diminish with time. But until then, this is me taking your hand and giving it a good squeeze. And I'm telling you that if you're struggling with shame, that's me too, my love, me too. Okay, dear human, that is all I have for you today. But before I sign off, I want to remind you that I have opened up the show to questions. 
So if you have a specific question or situation you want me to offer my thoughts or experiences on, you can always email me at corey at coreyamstrom.com. Otherwise, I will be back next week with another episode of A Well-Cared-For Human. And until then, please take good care of you. This episode of A Well-Cared-For Human was written and produced by me, Corey Marie. The music was by Late Night Feeler and Esther Abrami. If you like what I'm doing here, please consider visiting my Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you get early ad-free access to the episodes, as well as a monthly patrons-only Q&A, bonus videos, and more. Not to mention that your Patreon support lets me know that you find value in the show and want it to continue. You can find me on Patreon by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Marie. If you can't support the show financially, that is okay. You can still subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, and recommend the show to your friends, not just the neurotic ones. All of this helps so much. And as always, thank you for listening.